Our reading this evening is Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 23, and that's page 1183 in the Church Bibles. Verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things were created by him and for him. He is above before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behaviour. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, not moved from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. This is the word of the Lord. Let's ask for God's help as we think more about this passage. And so we pray, our Father, that you would fill us with the knowledge of your will, through all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We all know, don't we, that the world is not as it should be. Uh, the world is not as we think it should be. Uh, but how we understand what the problem is with our world can vary enormously. Perhaps your mind goes to climate change, and you think that's the great problem with our world. Or perhaps it's pandemics. We still haven't got out of this one, let alone the next one to come. Or perhaps you think the problems in our world are more political. Perhaps you think it's the rise of the neoconservatives. And just to show I'm not being unfair, maybe you think it's the kind of liberal left and their kind of woke agenda. Or maybe you think actually the problem is closer to home. It's to do with self-esteem and how we feel about ourselves. See, we know there's great problems with the world, don't we? But what they are can vary enormously. And that really matters because how we answer that question, what's the problem with our world, governs what we think the solution is. And in fact, how we understand the problem with our world will govern how seriously we think the gospel and what Christianity is about is. See, if we think the great problem of our world is climate change, well, you can understand, can't you, why we would protest, uh, why we would seek change. If you think the biggest problem is a pandemic, well, I guess you start building a bunker now for the next one. 
you think it's the Conservatives, uh, you will complain against them, as these guys are outside Trump Tower. Uh, if you think it's the liberal left, well, then you'll do the same. And I guess if you think it's to do with self-esteem, well, then our focus will be on self-help and well-being. But actually, the problem we see in this passage this evening runs far deeper than those things. All those things have got a place, of course, but actually the problem is far deeper. But amazingly, the solution is far greater as well. See, um, Paul switches subject in verse 21. Uh, For the last two weeks, we've seen this great presentation, haven't we, of Christ and who he is. And now the camera switches onto you. Notice what he says, verse 21, once you. And so now it gets very personal. Here's who Christ is, Paul says, but now here's how you're brought in. And he shows us, first of all, how we didn't fit in with God, but secondly, how we now fit in, and then thirdly, why we should stay in or remain in. So he begins uh, in our first point with a history lesson in verse 21. He says, once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. I don't know if people talk about FOMO anymore. Probably not. I'm probably a bit late to the party. But FOMO, fear of missing out, is something that we hate to feel, isn't it? But actually, Paul reminds the Colossians that FOMO is something they should be feeling when it comes to God. Because they are alienated from him. A big no entry sign stands between us and God. And yet, he says, they are enemies in their minds. Now, of course, that doesn't mean they're kind of wrestling with God physically, but he says they're enemies in their minds. And minds in the New Testament describes the whole kind of inner self, the emotion, the feeling, the kind of thought life we have. And Paul says that is hostile towards God. Now, maybe we think to ourselves, that's a bit strong, surely, Paul. But he gives us some evidence because he says, because of your evil behavior. Or if you look down to the footnote, uh, a better way of putting it is, as shown by your evil behavior. See, the actions on the outside come from this hostility on the inside. Now, of course, Paul's not just singling out the Colossians as some special case. He's speaking about the whole human condition here. See, every part of us, every one of us, he says, stands alienated from God, enemies in our minds, shown by our evil deeds. And so coming back to that question at the beginning, what's our greatest problem? Well, you'll see immediately, can't you, that it's not ecological, it's not biological, it's not political, it's not sociological, but it's theological. Actually, there's a problem with our hearts. Now, maybe, um, like me, you're asking the question, why does Paul start here? Because, you know, Colossians is a pretty positive letter, isn't it? Over the last two weeks, I've had lots of fun and been very happy talking about what we see about the Lord Jesus. And now it kind of brings things down a little bit, doesn't it? Paul reminds them of what they're like. But actually, as I looked through here, I thought to myself, actually, this is positive because no one else is telling them what their real problem is. Over the last couple of weeks, we've seen, haven't we, how there's different voices coming into the church in Colossae and whispering into their ears that they need Jesus, but they need something extra. They need the religious practice. 
or they need some sort of super spiritual experience. But something I didn't notice until this week is not just that they get the solution wrong, but actually they get the problem wrong as well. Have a look at chapter 2, verse 23, just over the page. Chapter 2, 23. And here's Paul describing the problem with these teachers. He says, such regulations indeed have the appearance of wisdom, where their self-imposed worship and their false humility and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. Now, sensual indulgence, literally the word flesh, and when Paul uses the word flesh, he doesn't mean kind of meat. He means, sorry, vegetarians, he doesn't mean meat. He means kind of uh, the human kind of antagonism towards God. And Paul says that actually they look the part, these teachers, They've got all the kind of religious practice, but actually it has no value in actually stopping the real problem. So imagine you go to the doctors because you find a lump and it turns out that it is the diagnosis you fear. And the diagnosis is, um, and, and and the doctor prescribes you a course of paracetamol. Well, it may feel like you're doing something. It looks kind of medical, doesn't it? But actually you'll know that If you just take a series of paracetamols, it's not going to touch the real problem. And Paul does this, I think, so that we understand the problem, so that we will appreciate the solution he goes on to. It's important, isn't it, that we not just think about the solution that's being offered in the gospel, but also the problem we're being told about. See, I think the two questions you want to ask of every Bible teacher, including me, what are they telling me about the solution, but also what are they telling me about the problem? If I think the problem's just psychological, well then chances are I'm going to hear a message of kind of psychology and self-help. If my greatest problem is that I'm not wealthy enough or not healthy enough, well then it's going to be the health and wealth gospel. If my problem is boredom brought about by kind of the emptiness of our secular age, well actually I'm going to probably be presented with a message of entertainment. See, it really matters, don't we, that we grasp what the problem is. And that's why Paul starts here. He knows that to value Christ, well, we need to understand why Christ came, what our deepest problem is. And I wonder, is that something we get in ourselves? Now, you all look very presentable this evening. Um, Some of us have made a real effort. And um, it's great. You all look very well behaved on the outside. And you know, no one's having an argument or anything. We are all very well behaved. But I know, because I know my own life, that actually if I followed you around, that sounds a bit weird, if, you know, if I spent time with you through the week, actually you'll get a very different picture. Uh, I know you would with me. As it's harder to keep that inner self contained. And Paul says that is because of the way we are alienated from God, enemies in our minds, shown by our evil behaviors. Now, I know that's difficult to hear, and when I first heard this as a, not a Christian, I, I really struggled with it, but actually, do you know what? It became quite reassuring, because lots of people told me there were problems with the world, but they put the blame out there. It's economic factors, it's psychological factors, it's sociological factors, it's political factors. But actually, I knew deep down that there were things I did because of my background or because I was tired or something like that. But actually, I knew deep down there were things I did just because I wanted to do them. 
as I heard God and heard his kind of right to rule over me and this creation, there's a bit of me that shouts, no, no way. And actually, the more I look at this, the more I think, actually, it's great we've got someone here who's honest with the depths of the problem we feel. Of course, though, that's only half the picture, isn't it? Because secondly, we see that actually you didn't fit in, but now you do fit in. There are two key words, isn't there? Uh, Verse 22, uh, start with them. They're great words, but now. Paul speaks about the past, and now he moves to the present. He says, you were, but now, verse 22, he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. See, it's a completely different picture, isn't it? That was the past, now's the present. You were alienated, and now you're reconciled. There was once a no-entry sign between you and God, and now God extends his hand of a friendship. You were caught up in your evil deeds, but now look at the way he describes this church. Holy, without blemish. It's the language of the Old Testament sacrifices. And you were enemies in your minds. You had plenty of accusations, not just from Satan, but from anyone who knew you. But now, he says, look, verse 22, you're free from accusation. No one can say anything against you. Those two words, but now, really are the gospel in its essence. If you could put the Christian message into a saucepan and boil it right down to its components, It is those two words, but now. You were this, but now something's happened. Now, of course, the question is, how's that possible? Because we've just spent so long, haven't we, telling, Paul spent so long telling us what the problem is, that actually the problem's not primarily out there, it's in here. So how can he flip from saying that actually we're hostile to God to now saying that actually we're holy and free from accusation? Well, there's one difference. It comes at the beginning of verse 22, and he says this, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death. Notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say, but now he's reconciled you because you've sorted your ideas out and you're better behaved. It doesn't say, but now he's reconciled you because, well, to be honest, guys, your attitude's changed, and now you quite like God where you didn't before. He doesn't say, but now he's reconciled you because actually maybe the problem isn't that big and actually when I look at you, you're not that bad. In fact, he doesn't say anything about them, does he? He says, but now he's reconciled you by Christ. It's not about us, it's about him. It's about the cross. See, the problem is far too deep for us to sort out with a kind of attitude change or a character change Actually, we need God to intervene. Um, You'll remember these pictures from a few years ago of the Chilean miners. I don't know, maybe it's probably old now, isn't it? It's probably like 20 years old or something. But uh, these guys were stuck uh, hundreds of meters under the ground after a cave accident. And you'll remember that they were completely cut off from the world, unable uh, to see, unable to connect to the service until, that is, this probe was sent down and was able to lift each of these miners out. And it was a great moment as the crowds kind of greeted each one, one at a time. 
And it reminds us, doesn't it, of where we are without God's intervention. It's not something we can climb out of ourselves. We're in the darkness. We're trapped. And yet God sends his son to die in our place. And so that you and me can be saved from the problem we face. See, we don't fit. But we now fit through Christ and his death. And that's so important, we grasp that, especially when we look at this book of Colossians, because there are many, many voices whispering in their ears, saying, actually, you can fit, but it's a different way. And so Paul speaks about their holiness, but actually there are plenty of people saying, you find holiness through um, religious practice. Look at verse 16 of chapter 2, 2 verse 16. He says, therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink, or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. So these guys are saying, look, if you want to be holy, check what you eat, check what you drink. Don't eat this, don't eat that, don't drink this, don't drink that. Or or the religious festival, you must do this pilgrimage, you must do this action, then you'll be holy. But Paul says, no, you're holy by Christ. And perhaps some of them wanting to feel kind of an extra reassurance that they're God's people are being attracted to super spiritual experiences. Have a look at 2 verse 18. He says, do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you from the prize. Such a person goes into great detail about what he's seen and his unspiritual mind puffs him up with idle notions. So this is someone who comes up with these amazing visions. I'm not quite sure what worship of angels is, but it It's super spiritual stuff, isn't it? But Paul says, no, the way you're free from accusation, the way you're reassured is not through these super spiritual experiences, but through Christ and his death. There is only one way, and that's Christ. Maybe we're here this evening, and we feel close to God, but I guess in lots of us won't feel close to God. But actually, the question is not how we feel, the question is what Christ has done. And the moment we see that Christ has died for us is the moment we are closer to God than we can ever be or ever will be. Perhaps we're here this evening and um, we feel pretty good about ourselves, but I guess some of us will feel pretty beaten up. We think, how have I had a week like that? And yet the question isn't how we feel about our sin, the question is what God has done about our sin. See, in Christ, we are holy, blameless, without accusation. Perhaps we don't feel very significant. Perhaps we are kind of stuck in a job we don't like. Perhaps we don't feel that anyone really notices us. But in Christ, we are presented in God's sight without blemish through the cross. See, you didn't fit in, but now you do fit in. And third and finally, so make sure you remain in. Uh, There is a bit of a warning in this final verse, verse 23, uh, because he says, if you continue in your faith, established and firm, not moving from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a servant. Uh, It's that word if, isn't it? If you continue, he says. As we're saying that there are different types of ifs in the English language, I think. There's um, 
a don't know if and there's an expectant if. What do I mean by this? Well, um, I don't know if is, um, let me give you an example. If someone says, we go to the beach on Saturday if it doesn't rain. Now, living in the UK, you'll know that that is a 50-50, if I'm being generous, isn't it? That actually, we don't know if it's going to rain or not. And so, it's a kind of don't know. Could go one way, could go the other. But actually, there's an expectant if as well, which is slightly different. Um, when I hold my children's hands in the car park, sometimes I get a bit scared that a car's driving around. And so, I say to them, it's okay, you'll be safe if you keep hold of daddy's hand. That isn't a kind of don't know if, is it? It's not like, well, you may be safe or you may get run over. It is a kind of expectant, of course, stay hold of, keep hold of my hand. And actually, verse 23 is more like the expectant if rather than the don't know if. It isn't Paul saying, well, who knows if you're going to follow Christ or not? It's 50-50. It is saying, look, guys, you already do. Make sure you keep hold of the hand. Now, I know people were asked the question, does that mean people can lose their salvation? And perhaps I'm setting myself up for the Q&A afterwards. But, you know, or, or what about this kind of save, once saved, always saved? I, I thought it was about that. Well, actually, I think the New Testament doesn't quite answer the question on our terms. Yes, of course, in Christ, we're absolutely saved. But for as long as we keep continuing to trust Christ. Uh, Jesus warns his disciples verse, uh, in John chapter 15, where he says this, remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. If you do not remain in me, you're like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up and thrown into the fire and burned. See, Jesus says, you need to remain in me. A friend of mine was asked the question, what does the New Testament teach about whether I can lose my salvation or not? And my friend just said, don't. See, there is an if, isn't there? And it's not there to kind of set up theological conundrums. It's not there to kind of unsettle us. But it is there to encourage us to keep our eyes on what's important. It's like my child walking through the car park. To keep hold of my hand, if you continue and he describes what that looks like. He says it's established and firm. And in fact, the, uh, the phrase, uh, the word there used for firm is the word for foundation. It's like a foundation stone, completely immovable, holding up the building. And Paul says, look, if you continue, established in that. And you'll notice that he reminds them that actually this is the gospel they heard. Now, if you look over the page to uh, chapter 1, verse 4, uh, he reminds them, um, uh, sorry, verse 5, he says, he reminds them that the faith and love spring up from the hope that is stored for you in heaven, that you've already heard in the word of truth, the gospel that has come to you. And so Paul's saying, look, you don't need Jesus plus, you don't need gospel 2.0, you need to hold on to that message, firm, established, the message of Christ crucified. See, being a Christian is not trying to strive to make it, trying to be something we're not. Rather, it is holding on to what we've got. I don't know if you do the whole kind of wallet, phone, keys check. Is that just me? But several times a day, I'm doing that. 
Okay, not a wallet anymore, got Apple Pay, but you know, I still hit the back pocket. Phone, keys, wallets, yes. If you've got handbags, doesn't really apply to you. Uh, but um, it's amazing. I, I mean, I hate to think how many times a day I'm checking my phone, wallet, and keys. I wonder how much I check whether the kind of gospel is central. So often I'm more concerned about my keys and my wallet and my phone and not having Christ central. And so I was thinking, every time I do wallet, keys, phone, I need to think gospel as well. See, we've got a great problem. But wonderfully, Christ has provided the solution. And so we'd be crazy to throw that away. And I guess the question is, isn't it, where are we on this? Is Christ our foundation? Well, if he is, well, thank God, and keep going with him. But it is good to check, isn't it, whether our eyes drift onto something else. Perhaps we're here this evening, and we are still confused about Christian things. We're not sure we're a Christian. Uh, But actually, this is first and foremost what it's about. Not pretending we're something we're not, admitting what God says about us and trusting in his solution through Jesus. And I guess the question for us all, isn't it, is is this our priority? Is this our foundation, the thing we come back to time and time again? I don't know about you, but it's so easy, isn't it, to drift your attention onto the job, relationships, the next house project, and, and they've all got their place, of course. But actually, the first and foremost, it is staying in Christ, in the gospel. It'd be great to think through that in groups. We're going to do that uh, afterwards. We've got some questions there to consider. And it'd be good for us to think as a church as well, is how's this our priority and how does it look like our priority? Because the national church, well, there's many kind of different measures of success, like pounds and people in the pews. But actually for Paul, it's the gospel and holding on to that. See, Christ is enough. He is supreme over all creation He's supreme over the new creation, and in him, you and me are reconciled. And so, now being in, Paul says, remain in him. Thank you, our Father, that we are through Christ's body, presented holy in your sight, without blemish and free from accusation. Please, Father, by your Spirit, help us to hold on to that truth, to live it out, and to hold on to it. In Jesus' name, amen. We've had a, a few questions come in, um, so we'll, we'll tackle as many as we can in the time that we have. So uh, the first one, how can we be sure that someone we know won't lose their salvation if they claim to be a Christian? Thank you for the musical um, <laughs> accompaniment there as well. So do you want to say that again? I can say that Listen. again, yeah. Uh, how can we be sure that someone we know won't lose their salvation if they claim to be a Christian? Yeah, so the very fact yeah, so I, I know this is difficult to hear, but I don't think the New Testament ever promises um, that we won't lose our salvation uh, if we say, you know, a confession or something like that. So what the New Testament says is don't, as I say, um, keep trusting in Jesus. And so Jesus talks about uh, taking up your cross daily, uh, keeping hold of him daily. Uh, yes, so someone, uh, someone won't... Um, yeah, we can't say, you know, there's not a possibility of turning away because obviously we, that is our experience. We sadly see that uh, in people. But everyone who trusts in the Lord Jesus uh, for as long as they do that are saved. 
Great. There's um, there's a couple of questions on on doubt. One one kind of uh, that's linked to that. It says, if you're going through a difficult time, time having already been saved, and are having doubts, could this put your salvation at risk? So kind of similar to before. But then also there's a question which is talking about well, are we also allowed to doubt, particularly when life is getting tough? So I guess that idea of um, you know, can we? Yeah, are doubts putting salvation at risk? And is there room for doubt? Are we allowed to doubt and things like that? Really, really helpful questions. Yeah. So, and um, I'm sure questions that we will all ask uh, at some point. Um, it's important to say that we're not saved by our ability or our level to have faith. We're saved by Jesus and His intervention and the cross. Um, salvation comes through us grasping hold of what Jesus has already done for us rather than our strength in being able to hold on to him. So uh, doubts absolutely are, are part of the Christian life. You see that in the disciples. I mean, they are all over the place, to, to put it kindly. Um, and you see that in the Psalms, actually, through the very ups and downs of life. It is huge. There's huge amounts of doubt uh, about my experience and kind of how that squares with God and who he is. Um, but the important thing to come back to is those doubts can actually lead to belief. It's as we express those things, and you see this in the Psalms, that actually we're reminded of who God is. Uh, and so, yes, I think it's a part of the Christian life to doubt, to question. Uh, but the important thing is that those things drive us to embrace the gospel more and more. We've got one more if you want. Go on. Time. Whatever everyone else wants. But. Yeah, well, there's, there's a quite a lot <laughs> no, of no, quotes on it. So um, <laughs> it says, what was the evil behavior of the Colossians referenced in verse 21? And what happened to bring them to Christ? Was it the resurrection? Can I answer that and then come back and give us part two to my answer to that question you just asked, mm -hmm. if that's okay. So I'm basically answering two questions now. Um, what were the evil behaviors? I think it's quite a quick one. Um, don't know exactly, but in chapter three, verse five, he talks about putting to death what their previous life was, uh, and he talks about sexual morality, impurity, lust, evil desires, greed, uh, and verse 7, he says, you used to walk in these things, the life you once lived. And I don't know about you, but that is so reassuring, isn't it? That actually, this was a group of people who were sexually immoral, they were lusting, they were greedy, they were impure. Uh, a group that is like you and me. Uh, well now, yeah, hopefully take that the right way. Um, actually, and they're the very group that Christ died for and Christ saved. Part two of my answer, <laughs> if it's okay, mm -hmm. to this question about doubt, because um, it just came to mind that there's a, there's a minister called Don Carson, and um, he, he, puts a very, he gives a very helpful illustration here. Uh, he says, remember back to the Exodus, and remember that the, uh, the, the lamb's blood was painted on the door, and uh, the angel of death passed through, and it was the lamb's blood that saved you. And he kind of raises the question, imagine you went to bed that night, and imagine you were kind of really relaxed about it. You went straight to sleep as soon as your head hit the pillow. But imagine in the house next door that actually the person puts the blood on the doorpost, but they stay up all night, anxious, worried about what will happen. Which house gets saved? And the answer is both, of course because it's not how they feel inside. It is the blood on the doorpost that matters. And actually, that act of faith is like putting the blood on the doorpost. It is saying that Christ has done it. I'm going to trust in that, despite 
how things feel. Thank you. Mm -hmm.